before we kick off this week's episode, which is a live recording with Tanya Minera-Williams, I wanted to remind you about our live event coming up on September the 11th. We will shortly be starting ticket sales for the Sacred Live with Richard Ayoade and Lydia Fox. We're really looking forward to talking to them at the Curzon Bloomsbury, and I hope you can join us. Hello. Hello. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and uh, this is the Sacred Live. Uh, We are a podcast uh, that uh, is exploring our public debates and how we can have better conversations across different. And I'm really delighted to be recording this today at the Exploring Belief Festival at JW3, organised by the Religion Media Centre. As I said, this podcast is about our public debates and really trying to get behind the arguments, behind the positions, behind the identities to better understand the people taking part in those debates. So every episode I speak to someone who is bringing their voice to the public square, to journalists, to academics, from artists to activists, from archbishops to comedians. And I ask them about their deepest values, their sacred values the things that has formed them. I asked them about their story and what they've learned about dealing with difference because I think all of us uh, think that the way that we are conducting our public conversations, that the way we are doing our common life uh, perhaps needs a bit of work as our societies become increasingly diverse, increasingly plural. We could do with some space to reflect uh, on what that means for all of us, no matter where we sit politically, uh, religiously, or on any of the other myriad identities which we all hold. Uh, Previous guests include Sally Phillips, Francis Bufford, Ian Dunt, Claire Fox, Justin Welby, and Ash Sarkar. Uh, We're in conversations with the amazing Understanding and Belief um, team about possibly taking part in their conference at the Vatican at this coming May, and in September we'll be interviewing Richard Ayoade and Lydia Fox at uh, a ticketed evening event. My guest today is Tanya Minera-Williams, who is one half of hip-hop, reggae and spoken word duo Poetic Pilgrims. And you can go and uh, I've been slightly binging on their videos on YouTube. Uh, She's an artist, a poet, an activist and a presenter of Pause for Thought on BBC Radio 2. And many of you will have heard her polemic this afternoon. She is of Jamaican heritage and, as I'm sure you've heard, converted to Islam. We're going to hear a bit more about that. And so I'm going to kick off straight away with the big meaty question. And I use the phrase sacred values because I think it helps us get a bit deeper underneath what we present in public. It doesn't necessarily have to be religious values, but what I mean by it is principles that we hold dear, that we try and live our life by, that we're not necessarily explicit about, but that we perhaps bring into those public conversations and perhaps press on each other's sacred values. It helps us to understand them. Tanya has had a bit of warning because it's, uh, it's not your classic small talk question. Um, Tanya, what do you think perhaps your prime sacred value is? Um, So I think my prime sacred value really is about conveying or facilitating or allowing alternative stories to be told. Um, And I think that's for several reasons. I was thinking about heritage. I was thinking about all of these other things like heritage, where we're from, you know, our roots, what we learn from our parents and from our families. 
I was thinking about the freedom to explore and to grow and develop and the freedom of expression. And I thought if I had to choose one value, I think actually in conveying alternative stories, all of these different things actually can filter through into that. So the conveying of different stories, alternative stories. Thank you. So tell us a bit more about your story and particularly uh, in your childhood when little Tanya was running around. (laughs) uh, Were there any religious or political or philosophical ideas kind of in the air that you think helped shape you? So I am, um, I was born in England. My parents are from Jamaica. They came over in the 60s. And so a lot of the people who came over, first of all, to understand about Jamaica, it's a very religious, um, a very religious country, but also a very spiritual country. So, you know, Christianity is really big out there. I believe once it was in the Guinness Book of Records for having the most churches per square mile or something like this. Also Rastafarianism that comes from Jamaica. You look at things like we have different understandings of Christianity. So we have like the Poca church and all of these different forms of churches, which really holds on to spirituality. And like, there's a nuance of West Africa within Jamaican culture. So I was raised around that. And even, even without trying, that seeps through, you know, I say to people all the time, you know, because of my older brothers, I was breastfed on, um, breastfed on reggae music and if you look at reggae music for me it's a real spiritual form of music it's almost like gospel music having that as my background um yeah god was definitely a theme throughout my life throughout my childhood um understanding god and also dignity you know coming from jamaica as migrant families coming from that background but also the heritage or the history of of slavery and enslavement you know that also seeps through how do we as a people get over this and Mm. still walk about with pride and dignity. But you left church and converted Mm -hmm. to Islam. Tell me a bit about uh, the steps between one place and the other. It's interesting because I reflect back now and I think had things been different, you know, um, would I still be a Christian? So at the time, my mum was very bold in in church, in the church that she belonged to. They didn't believe that women um, should wear trousers, for example, and they didn't believe that women were allowed to wear jewellery. And so my mum was like, well, no, I want to wear my wedding ring and I want to wear trousers. So I saw her do that and I was really impressed by her boldness. But it made me question, why can't you do these different things? And also, I guess my race came into it because I had questions about Jesus and the image of Jesus and why was he portrayed as you know blonde hair blue eyed and all of these questions which I had which really at the time the church I don't think they were used to having people questioning them about it so I had many questions and they weren't able to answer my questions and in fact I was made to feel shame at quite a young age for having these questions in the first place and so that was the beginning of me leaving church and then through that I explored several different forms of belief. I even went back to church but it was the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and then directly after that um, Islam came into my life really by way of the Malcolm, X, um, Malcolm X's autobiography and also Fatima Manisi who really challenges ideas of you know of what is Islam and is it this male dominant thing so those were the things that led me to Islam. It's fascinating because I think not many people necessarily who don't uh, who haven't thought a lot or read about about Islam associate it with uh, issues of race that you were struggling with and issues of kind of political liberation. Mm. Uh, Why do you think those questions were so live for you and what now in your faith Mm. uh, what inspiration do you draw around those issues? 
So I think really just growing up in a society, I was born in the 80s, you know, and like I am the first um, generation born in um, the first generation born of like people were born in England from Jamaican heritage. So I think these questions of race, it's, it's just about being not a new community, but a relatively new community within Britain, you know, and people understanding us and, you know, us understanding people. So I think these questions were really natural, but you know, coming from Jamaica, there was this sort of idea of a child should be seen and not heard. Unfortunately, it's changed a lot, but that was there at that time. In regard to Islam, you know, I converted to Islam just before the 7-7 bombings, um, literally three weeks. And so I've entered a really political sphere. But I think for me, um, I'm really more interested in what I call the sacred, more interested in what I call the spiritual and the connection of God and also the connection to humanity because I don't think it's just like a vertical relationship. It should be a horizontal relationship. It must have been really formative for your kind of burgeoning Islamic identity to be thrust then into these public debates that were... Uh, really difficult to navigate. How much did you feel the need to, as a brand new Muslim, defend Islam or speak in public about it? Or has it, did you feel like that kind of internal sacred and spiritual exploration was, um, was more true to your faith? So in the beginning, you're right. It was really literally thrusted. And I was like, okay, so I'm a Muslim now. I came for spiritual reasons. However, I'm supposed to agree with this, that, this, that, that. It was like going through a checklist, you know, of what I'm supposed to believe and what, um, you know, whose side am I on on different debates. Um, And also, I didn't realize at the time that many organizations were actually using poetic pilgrimage as this sort of like tool. Like, look, they can speak about Islam. Islam, but also I think there were some difficult questions which many of these organizations didn't want to answer so it was almost like you go out you speak about it you rap and we'll just sit in the background so it was very difficult but now having matured you know um in the religion I am I do say politics is important of course because it politics is everywhere but actually I am more concerned with I belong to what would be called um Sufism or like a more spiritual form of Islam so like I am concerned with my heart I am concerned with communicating with people as opposed to just the politics like I'm interested in a heart level what are you interested in why do we have differences let's talk about this so when, for example, underneath your YouTube video, there's sometimes other Muslims commentate, uh, commenting and asking questions about music itself as something, whether that's valid or not, within Islam. How do you navigate that conversation? Back then, I would, you know, try and they would provide their proofs. I would provide my proofs because people say, some people say that music isn't permissible within Islam. But I was very lucky to have um, people around me who were like, actually, women are allowed to do music. Music is permissible. In fact, in Islamic history, you don't see men do music. So if they want to say anything, then you just say to them, where's the proof that you as a man are allowed to perform you know, music? But I, I don't engage in these conversations anymore. I feel like they're pointless conversations. People are allowed to have their beliefs. I'm allowed to have mine. So I'm just more concerned with the people who want to focus on what are the messages coming out through the music. So that's really fascinating because one of the things that I worry about in the way our public debates are structured is that they are set up in very adversarial ways and the various tribes or the different lobby, lobby groups or the different faiths or the different political parties, in positions on Brexit, whatever it is, uh, argue with each other and argue in these quite adversarial, polemical ways. But And that's how we're set up, but I'm not convinced 
really how how often anyone changes their mind or anyone's persuaded or we actually build mm. understanding or empathy or anything that would be more healthy and human. So what ways, when you do disagree with someone, whether it's someone who's not a Muslim or someone who disagrees with your music or on race or gender, what have you learned about engaging across those differences? So first of all, I've learned that if the person just wants to argue with me, it's probably not worth having the conversation. A lot of the times I notice when people come to me, they carry, and maybe even myself, they carry their traumas with them. So for example, someone whose parents told them that you're not allowed to do music or something, they have all of these traumas. And actually they're not interested in what I have to say. They're really trying to work out for themselves. So you're becoming like a cipher through which they can deal with their own baggage. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it's really important to just listen general and and generally, and also to not speak just to be right, but try to understand their point of view. I am the type of person, if someone says A, I would say B. If someone says B, I would say A. And I enjoy being like that because it allows me to experience, you know, the diversity of the conversation. So there's so many ways, uh, so many threads I could talk to you about because you sit on fault lines around lots of different things. But I want to just pick up a bit on feminism and gender because in some of your writing, it sounds like you're asking questions about that label. And it's on my mind because I've had two podcast guests recently, someone who works in a women's prison and is bringing the voices of women from prison. And she said, I've discovered that those women wouldn't necessarily feel welcome within feminism because they don't know the woke language or or within certain spheres of feminism, or perhaps they have more traditional gender roles, but they're women with, you know, political struggles and where do they fit? And then another guest who is um, from a Nigerian background, is from a Pentecostal church, would very much call herself a feminist, but does believe in traditional gender roles and believes that the man is the head of the household in a marriage and feels, I think, quite wounded at being told you're not a real feminist. Mm. And so I'm just interested in those conversations across difference amongst women about what feminism is does is it a label that you feel comfortable with and where do you sit as a muslim woman it depends what room i'm in (laughs) sometimes i call myself a feminist and sometimes i'm totally not a feminist and i think my reason for that and the struggle that i'm having is because the other day i said to my mum, mum, are you a feminist and she said "Uh, i don't really know what it is i know it's got something to do with women but i don't really understand it My mum is a hard worker. She's um, married. She's a great wife, but she's also very independent. You know, she works in prison. She works with sex workers. She is um, a preacher in her church. She doesn't understand what feminism is, yet she is the best feminist that I know, you know? And so the fact that she probably wouldn't be engaged in a conversation. Sometimes I walk into rooms and literally just because of my headscarf, I wouldn't understand, you know, and even you have this idea of intersectional feminism. But a lot of the time people in these spaces are concerned with race. They're not really concerned with the faith, you know, so I'm I'm left out. And even looking at Muslims as well, Muslim feminism sometimes is very much Arab feminism. So I just haven't found my space and it feels like the effort to have to, okay, well, this is a black Muslim feminist sort of dialogue then what about someone who's disabled? They will be left out. So I feel like either feminism needs to sort of rebrand itself so that it's inclusive for everyone, or I don't know. So I don't know if I'm a feminist or not. I know I care about women, but I'm not sure how I feel about that title. It feels like we're in a moment where saying, I'm not sure if I'm a feminist is pretty um, is pretty bold, which is just an interesting thing to name, isn't it? That mm. actually we've swung quite a long way in the last 10 years between what labels are 
approved of and what aren't. And as I'm listening to you, one of the questions that I keep coming back to is identity politics and feeling very torn between this sense of there being such genuine justice concerns for lots of different groups who, who have not had the privileges and the access to power and the opportunities that other sections of the population have, and that that is a problem for us. But also, as you've said, it feels like sometimes it's breaking down into smaller, smaller slices of, of identity groups and labels and then carving out smaller and smaller space and, um, and, 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 and how much that energy in doing that and in the words that we use and uh, how much is actually making progress and how much it's, it's bogging us down. Do, how do you feel about the, the, the phrase identity politics? Do you feel warm to it? Do you feel hostile to it? I don't feel hostile to it. I feel like sometimes we need to name things in order to understand it and then move on from there. I go to Belgium quite a lot and they're very, very much on terms, especially like the sort of um, African communities, various African communities there, like, you know, on these woke terms that I have no idea of the meaning. But once they understand it, they talk about it. They talk about identity politics a lot. They move on to something else. And just so that it's in the public sphere so that we can have more conversations, I think just raising conversations itself is 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 important and is needed. And if we don't have these terms, we're not able to do so. You alluded, alluded a little bit to Arab Arab Muslim feminists and you've spoken a bit in public about as a black Muslim woman sometimes feeling like both amongst Muslims there's questions about kind of how valid your Islam is and also that that just really confusing people Mm. in public do you think there's been improvements on that and how are you wrestling with that yourself at the moment I do think there's been improvements and some of them some of the improvements has been based on sincerity and people really wanting to be inclusive um looking at the Muslim community and some of the improvements have been based on people just wanting to look good so I think there needs to be a lot of movements from from black Muslims, um, working with organizations, working with um, wider bodies of Muslims and and obviously also non-Muslims to really tackle that. But it's my strength. It's my superpower. It's what's given me the ability to talk about so many different things, to identify with so many different people. Sitting on these sort of ley lines, on the intersections of all of these identities, it allows me to be more open and understanding. So I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, I'm going to ask you a final question, which I may uh, reserve the right to follow up, um, about uh, on, on that kind of uh, ley line, as you called it beautifully, on which you sit around Islam. Are there things that those who aren't Muslims, in public conversations particularly, you'd like them to understand or stop doing or do differently? And then amongst other Muslims, that same thing. Are there things that you'd like them you know, and I find this, you know, with Christians, I'm a Christian. Sometimes when Christians enter public debates, I'm like, oh, stop it. Um, and then there's things that I'd really like atheists to understand about my faith or stop assuming about my faith, um, if that question makes sense. Yeah, totally. I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but I read a quote the other day and it talked about um, migrant migrant children and the fact that like um, our parents who came over, their job was to survive. Our parents was to, or, or our job is to f- try to find meaning. And I think that like we need to, as Muslims, we need to try to find meaning of what it means to be Muslims. But if we're so concerned with the political, if we're so concerned with defending ourselves, like no, Muslims don't think this. And obviously it's important, but actually we're not being, we're just like, we're just like responding or reacting to people, but we need to start being now. So I feel like as Muslims, we don't need to always defend ourselves. You know, sometimes is if people think a particular thing, that's fine. 
but let's start being what do we look like out of the political and um, political sphere um in regards to um conversations or what about people who aren't muslims i think what i want people to do is really just get to know muslims like sit down break bread invite me to dinner i'm free you know and really just have conversations as opposed to you know seeing a neighbor from a distance or as opposed to seeing someone on television have these real conversations and just eat you know with people food is so good for bringing people together so that's what i think uh tanya Minero williams thank you so much for talking to me on the sacred could we give her a round of applause Thank you very much. Uh, Please do follow us on social media. uh, Check us out on iTunes and Spotify and everywhere else you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.